Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 7th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, some of the less discussed aspects of evolution. Darwin as a botanist with David Cohn, curator of an exhibit on that subject at the New York Botanical Garden, and origins of life research with Harvard Medical School's Jack Shostak. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. The Darwin's Garden exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden looks at Darwin's work as a botanist, as well as offering a walking tour of evolutionary science with botanical examples. David Cohn recently retired from Drew University as professor of science and society emeritus and is now the general editor of the Darwin Digital Library of Evolution based at the American Museum of Natural History. We spoke on April 23rd at the Garden. Dr. Cohen, good to talk to you. We're, we're sitting here in the rare book room at the Botanical Garden, and it's really great to be in this room. It's wonderful to see you here. We're, we're surrounded by some original Darwin publications, and, and if I think of Darwin, I think of finches and uh, Galapagos tortoises, which really didn't play much of a role, but he looked at the some, shells. Yeah. But I never think of plants. Really? Yes. That so, sh- absolutely shocks me, Mr. Steve. Uh, well, actually, plants are continuous part of Darwin's life uh, from childhood through maturity in the you know as a child he played in his father's garden which was a major garden he came from a family of uh, I would say the horticultural and botanical intelligentsia of England in the 18th century and and early 19th century Uh, his grandfather Erasmus Darwin who was one of the earliest evolutionists also was a, a major populist of Linnaeus, the great botanist. And uh, his father? His father was a doctor who had a great garden. And uh, so Darwin is introduced, it's in, it's in his blood. I think of him as uh, to the greenhouse born. That's and, you know, and the other side, too, his mother, on his mother's side, his mother is a Wedgwood. His uncle was one of the founders of the Royal Horticultural Society and a major supporter of, of uh Horticulture and botany. Uh, his grandfather writes a book called The Botanic Garden. What exactly was Darwin's botany in relation to his formulation of evolution, though? Ah, uh, it's integral to his view of life. I mean, plants are part of life, and Darwin's view is that all life is netted together. So he's interested in plants in, in that general way. His education in botany, which I think is pretty well been underappreciated, uh, was maybe his longest formal education in any subject. He took his course when he was in Cambridge University, albeit it was a three- to five-week course, but he took it three times in a row, three years in a row. So almost the entire time that he was in Cambridge, he was studying botany, which involved field trips, dissection of live plants. Uh, we know actually what he probably was taught by Professor Henslow because we still have his uh, syllabi. And we know that he had a good basic grounding in botany. When he's on the Beagle, one of the objectives that he has, he's got the you know, mission of collecting natural history specimens. It's rather open what he has to do. He doesn't, he can really do what he wants. But he does manage to collect over 2,000 plants. So one of the dimensions of Darwin as a botanist is as a natural history collector. Uh, he collects plants that are unique. He's got a very good eye. He follows his professor's instruction to collect everything in flower when he's particularly interested in an area. So at the same time that he is collecting the famous fossils 
giant mammalian fossils, the megafauna, which is another thing that Darwin is famous for, these big sloths and animals that are extinct, obviously, but they are represented in the, in, in, still in the South American fauna. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were a big find. In fact, that may be what got Darwin's career going. At the same time that he is making these discoveries or, or you know, excavations of, of bones, uh, he is collecting all the plants in the area. And went to the Galapagos, and there he specifically collected everything he could find that had a flower on it, which I think was an instruction from Henslow, so that his collection is the basis for our understanding of the Galapagos flora. Uh, I think that perhaps we now have four to five, as a rough estimate, four to five times more plants than Darwin collected, but that's not bad for three weeks. That's just one, that's just the beginning. He's a collector of plants. He's an observer of plants, very careful observer, an experimenter on plants, and a theorist of the, you know, the functional meanings of different plant structures. So there's an enormous amount of volume of work that's botanical that Darwin produces. He writes six books on plants. It's fair to say that from the time The Origin is published, The Origin of Species is published in 1859, till his death, the original research that Darwin does, that is, with his own two hands and eyes, is botanical. He does other work, but it's more, you know, literature-based. The original stuff is is botanical. And then in the making of the origin, now that, uh, you know, making of his theory, plants are interwoven with other organisms. Obviously, something is, is, you know, he would take his examples where they are important, but there are certain botanical issues that are key importance, and one of them has to do with reproduction, Plants are really fundamental for his, for his grasp of, of uh, the laws of reproduction, and it's the evolutionary consequences of, of uh, reproduction. The flowers of plants are particularly important to Darwin. Yes. It's, it's the most obvious place that evolution acts on a plant, perhaps. Yeah. And then the other side of it is, well, you referred to it to me earlier before we started to record as an organ of evolution. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that um, our common understanding today, a flower um, is involved in reproduction and involves pollen traveling from one plant to another, often brought by a pollinator like a you know an insect, a butterfly, or a bee, and um, that it's an organ. Uh, if you would ask anybody, what does a flower do? Do well, it produces seeds, but it does it by uh, crossing between plants. I think that's the general common sense understanding of plants. And that was not the case when Darwin started because m- most flowering plants have got males and females in the same uh, flower. It was assumed w- back in the 18th century when people first realized, like Linnaeus and others, that plants have sex at all, male and female sex. It was assumed that the real function was to produce offspring, that is seeds, and that since they were both there, well, they just, the, the plant fertilized itself. Darwin came along and thinking this through from first principles, first evolutionary principles, saw that that is an impossibility to be the function of a flower because if they self-pollinated perpetually, that would mean that there ultimately would be no variation. That would be a way to make clones. He figured this out, focused on this uh, in 1839 in Notebook E, 
his e-notebook, one of his transmutation notebooks. So it's part of his early evolutionary thinking. And uh, it's one of the first applications of natural selection. It's right after he discovers natural selection, he starts thinking about this problem. Well, why is that? Natural selection is requires variation to work. It is selection among different hereditary variants, right? So now if you have an, a, a, a group of organisms that selection is normal, I mean, sorry, variation is reduced, well, no evolution. So he recognized, this is a way that Darwin thinks, is there a problem for my theory? If there's a problem, he will do his best to try to solve it. And um, the plants were potentially a major problem. It's one of the big major problems that Darwin felt that he had, he had solved. And it forces him to think on this evolutionary basis that there must be some other purpose. And the purpose is, or function, I should say. And the function is the flower, which has all these attractive parts. It's, in fact, its beauty is really involved in a, generally in attracting insect or other animal uh, pollinators to guarantee outcrossing. Now, you know, Darwin lived in an age when people were beginning to be worried about inbreeding depression, as you might call it, mm-hmm. in general, in humans. I mean, he himself was his... Uh, uh, he married his second cousin. He married a cousin, right? yes. And uh, it could be a concern. In fact, this is happening, this thinking is happening just after he gets married. Right, and anybody mm-hmm. who watched the... Uh, the monarchies in Europe and yes, all their the relationships. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, if you think about it, if you marry your cousin, you are not doing anything dangerous compared to what us a flower would do. Right. Because it's marrying itself. The the degree of inbreeding is much steeper. It would lead to death in many fewer generations. Mm-hmm. So I think the biology here leads as much as this as the cultural context, uh, if not more, for him to be interested in this. Uh, it's one of those interesting intersections between that the, he's marrying this woman, Emma Wedgwood, at the same time that he is um, thinking about who's his cousin, that he's thinking about uh, inbreeding. Actually, I think she was his first cousin. I think he was, yeah, she was his first yeah. cousin. But one thing that I'm really bad at is lineages. Like <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, his work with plants enabled him to make some predictions. Yeah. That turned out to be correct. Yeah. So he gets these exotic plants, and nobody's seen, in some cases, nobody's seen the, the pollinator. But he's able to predict what the pollinator is like just from looking at the structure of the plant. And this, in a way, is a kind of independent test of his theory, and a very amusing one. And it's one that also gave him a lot of pleasure, in general, his plant observations do. So the one that's most famous is the star or comet orchid. It has a, a 12-inch long nectary, it's a tube that where nectar accumulates. And he predicts that there is a, um, a moth, thinks it has to be a moth, with a very long proboscis, basically like a straw, that would be a, maybe 11 inches long. Some time later, this moth is discovered in Madagascar. This is an interesting thing about Darwin's botany. Uh, you know, is it that Darwin is a is botany interesting because he's an observer, because he's a very observant person? Or is it, so in other words, like the, the victory of um, empiricism? Or is it something else? And I think it's something else, exactly. I think it's the fact that Darwin is operating from this theory of evolution that has a sub-theory about the necessity of outcrossing that leads him, when he looks at a flower, he knows exactly where to go, and to then make the careful observation. So it's, it's, it's observation very, very carefully guided by theory. 
so the, there's a kind of a blend of the empirical and the theoretical. The Darwin's Garden Exhibit runs until June 15th, so if you're in the New York City area, check it out. Go to www.nybg.org for more info. Hit the link for the shop and then for books to find info about a monograph by David Cohn about Darwin and botany. On May 6th, philosopher of science Michael Ruse and Cohn were part of a discussion on Darwin at the New York Botanical Garden. Here they answer a question about whether Darwin ever addressed the origin of life. That's a fascinating question, and it, it, it throws so much light on the origin and, and Darwin. I always refer to it in terms of the Sherlock Holmes story, the dog that didn't bark in the night. Why didn't Darwin talk about the origin of life in the origin? Because everybody else who wrote on the subject did. If you look at Lamarck, it's there. I mean, they all do. And afterwards, people like Heckel, it's there. And I think that Dar- this really does show not just that Darwin was clever, but that he was a sophisticated thinker. And he knew that getting into that one was just going to, you know, another metaphor, open a can of worms. And very cleverly, he just stays right away from it, one or a few forms, and leaves it like that. And if you look then at the 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 torrent of, of stuff which is written about the origin afterwards, it's clear that that was a very good strategy to take because by and large, that's not what pe- people are, are onto. I mean, they're all onto other things. They're, they're all onto man. I mean, that's what they're all interested in, including Darwin, of course. But the origin of life, by and large, doesn't, you know, doesn't brew up as a real problem for Darwin. He's always trying to defend, you know, to make the, the target, the religious target he's wearing on his back, as small as possible. And, of course, it's gigantic. But that would have made it, you know, just enormous. Because he can't say a word scientifically at that point in 1859 that has any scientific justification, unfortunately. Because merely speculate, and he does uh, try to avoid that. Which leads us right to Jack Shostak. He's in the genetics department at Harvard Med School and is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, and he actually studies origins of life. We spoke on May 2nd at an evolution conference at Rockefeller University in New York City. What exactly does somebody who's studying origins of life do that a a regular old evolutionary biologist doesn't do when they're doing their research? Well, what we're really trying to understand is how... Uh, molecules can get together and start to act in a Darwinian fashion. So we're talking about the origin of cellular systems that can evolve, which is completely different from the way that chemicals interact with each other. How is it different? Well, chemical reactions are, are you know controlled by the thermodynamics of the chemistry, by kinetic considerations. But Darwinian evolution is completely different because... In that case, we're talking about populations with variation and the selection of variants that are more fit. And as that is repeated and repeated, then the, the better variants come to dominate the population. You just don't have that kind of cyclic feedback system in a, in a simple chemical reaction. So where are we in this kind of research? I mean, obviously... No one has created a, a living cell from from buying reagent grade chemicals. So where where does the research stand right now? 
Well, that's basically what we're trying to do, but it's obviously going to be a long process. The way we're thinking about it, the critical components that we have to think about are some kind of genetic material. So it could be RNA or DNA like we have in modern biology, or it could be some related kind of material. And we're also thinking about some kind of cell envelope, a cell membrane. Um, not that that's necessarily the very first way Darwinian systems began, but at, at some point they had to transition into a, a system more related to modern biology where cells are all bounded by membranes. So we're thinking about how to assemble these two components and get them to interact with each other. That's an important point. Should you succeed, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way it happened. It's just a sort of a proof of concept, right? Absolutely. I mean, what we're interested in is figuring out plausible pathways for the origin of life. It would be great to have even one complete plausible pathway, but what we find often is when we figure out how one little step might might have worked, it gives us ideas, and then we end up with ultimately two or three or more different ways in which a particular step could could be could have could have happened so that that makes us think uh, that the the overall process might be more robust so uh, you know ultimately it would be nice i think if if it turned out there were multiple um, plausible pathways then of course we we might never know what really happened on the early earth and it should also be noted that this is a pretty young field so it's some some people who who don't want you to succeed uh, point out that no scientist has has been able to pull this off yet, but it's not really surprising. It's a complicated thing, and people haven't been working on it all that long. Yeah, I think you know, uh, uh, in in some ways, the field can be dated to the you know early experiments of Stanley Miller about fifty years ago. Uh, so it's a long process, going from very small, simple molecules up to a cellular structure. Um, there are parts of the pathway that I think are getting to be well understood, but there are many gaps in our understanding. But just because there are parts we don't understand doesn't mean that we'll never understand. You uh, you gave a talk yesterday, and you talked about some of the simple and yet unexpected phenomena that, that you see as you're doing this uh-huh. research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about approaching this problem by actually trying to build a system is that you come across all kinds of unexpected, interesting phenomena. And I think it's really nice. It's sort of broadening our perspective, making us think about different simple physical processes, different things that membranes can do, um, different ways you know the environment can impact assembly processes. There's a lot of surprising stuff out there once you really start to investigate the system in detail. Can you talk about any of the specifics there? Uh, well, I can mention uh, some of the things that have been published. For example, a few years ago, we were starting to look at the way that membranes self-assemble. Uh, and these are not modern kinds of membranes. These are membranes made with fatty acids. And it turns out that the assembly of membranes is actually catalyzed by preformed membranes. It's a surface phenomenon, and it's generalized, and many different surfaces will catalyze membrane assembly. And one of the interesting ones is that clay minerals 
will help membranes to assemble. So uh, it turns out there's a very common uh, clay mineral that had previously been looked at by prebiotic chemists and shown to help RNA molecules to assemble. So ultimately, what we had was a simple common mineral that can help uh, a genetic material to assemble, can help membranes to assemble, and it turned out can help bring them together. So that was a very satisfying outcome. Uh, But, you know, it's turned out there are many other uh, unanticipated simple physical processes that have been found in the course of these kinds of experiments as well. One, One of the issues that we have to think about is how small molecules can get across membranes without all the complicated modern biological machinery that controls the transport of molecules across membranes. So, so we were starting to, to look at how simple molecules like sugars get across uh, these fatty acid membranes, you know, spontaneously without any help from fancy proteins. And it turned out completely unexpectedly that ribose, which is one of the building blocks of RNA, gets across a wide range of membranes much more quickly than a set of very closely related sugars. So it makes you think that, well, maybe that could have been one contributing factor to why we actually use genetic materials that incorporate ribose, because early cells that relied on an external source of ribose would have had easier access to that material. compared to competing cells that were looking for a different sugar that had a harder time getting across the membrane. Now, we still don't really understand why ribose gets across so much faster. We have some ideas, but uh, that's that's just a topic that's going to take a lot more more study. But we never would have found this this, uh, surprising result if we weren't systematically looking at these kinds of transport processes. So if you want to make uh, new RNA, if you're duplicating RNA within that membrane, the fact that you can bring ribose into the the protocell easily is a real advantage there. Yeah, that would become an advantage at the point where um, the early steps of metabolism started to evolve. Absolutely. So where do you think uh, you're going to be in, uh, or the whole field is going to be in, you know, this is the, the typical hackneyed journalist question, but where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, the progress over the last uh, 10 or 20 years has been, on the one hand, very encouraging, right? We've learned a tremendous amount. On the other hand, we've also learned that there are things we we don't understand that we hadn't even thought about before. So, I you know, I, I can't really say that uh, you know, we'll have built a cell in three years or 10 years or 20 years, I and mean, we don't even know all the problems yet. Um, but I think th- the interest, the relevant part is that there are, there are a lot of really interesting scientific questions that are easy to investigate. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we're going to find out, so I think it's just going to continue to be an exciting time. What's one of the things that you didn't realize you'd need to know that you now know that you need to know? (laughs) Well, it's looking like one of the aspects that may take us some time to figure out is how to get a self-replicating genetic system off the ground. And 
when we when I started off in this field about 20 years ago, I was pretty confident that it would be something we could do relatively easily with an RNA-catalyzed replication system. And that's turned out to be substantially more difficult than I thought. Where RNA pretty much catalyzes its own reproduction. Right, right. So there's been tremendous progress in that. We have sort of proof-of-principle ribozymes that are RNA-dependent RNA polymerases, which is great. But I think we really have to step back and think about the problem in a different way in order to develop a simple, effective system that can actually do self-replication and not just be a proof of principle. So that's made us uh, look again at the chemistry of replication and start to explore a wider range of nucleic acids. For more, go to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute site, www.hhmi.org, and search for Shostak, that's S-Z-O-S-T-A-K. See especially the article, Evolution is Our Laboratory. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, belly fat is associated with increased risk for type 2 diabetes, but fat elsewhere in the body may lessen the risk. Story two, more fat news. The number of fat cells you have remains constant after childhood. Story three, some bats are capable of producing sounds 100 times louder than a rock concert. And story four, Ben Stein, the star of the anti-evolution movie Expelled, is a big supporter of most other science in general. We'll be back with the answer, but first I want to tell you about Scientific American's Daily Digest, a new email newsletter from the editors of Scientific American, which includes me, but don't let that stop you. In Scientific American's Daily Digest, editors highlight the latest news, articles, podcasts, and videos from Siam.com and deliver it to your inbox five days a week. So you get breaking news, thought-provoking features, selected blog posts, links to podcasts and slideshows, updates on magazine articles, and more. So you won't miss anything at Siam.com ever again. Just sign up at www.siam.com slash daily. Meanwhile, back at the quiz... Story one is true. Body fat that's not belly fat may actually lessen the risk of diabetes. That's according to research in the May issue of the journal Cell Metabolism. Fat in the hips and thighs is associated with improved insulin sensitivity, which is lacking in diabetes. The researchers hope they can find whatever substance the fat is making that might help glucose metabolism. Story two is true. Your fat cell number does remain constant, but new fat cells arise and replace older ones that die off to keep the number constant. Researchers hope that by understanding that mechanism, they might interfere with it, leaving you with fewer fat cells. For more, check out the May 6th daily podcast, 60 Second Science. And story three is true. Some bats can screech 100 times louder than rock concerts. That finding appeared in the journal Public Library of Science 1. Bat calls had previously been recorded at 120 decibels, but researchers found bats in Panama that are much louder. They say that the bat makes a noise equivalent to standing on an airport runway, not bad for a mammal weighing less than two ounces. All of which means that story four about Ben Stein supporting science other than evolution is totally bogus, because apparently Ben Stein hates all science, not just evolution. He appeared on the Trinity Broadcasting Network recently and said, quote, 
the last time any of my relatives saw scientists telling them what to do, they were telling them to go to the showers to get gassed, end quote. He also said, quote, that's where science leads you, end quote. Not to worry, though, Ben, despite your worldview, your physician has taken an oath and will therefore still prescribe you life-saving antibiotics created by scientists. And you can probably continue to use those eye drops, you hawk. I certainly hope some scientists were involved in making sure those things were effective and safe. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Daily Digest at www.siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.